morning. We're going to uh, read through the Bible reading for this morning in preparation for the message. Um, so if you turn to 1 uh, Samuel chapter 14, and as you're turning to that, just um, let me give you a little recap of where we're up to. Um, we haven't been going through 1 Samuel, so if you were streaming this on Netflix or something, this is the episode recap of where the story's up to. Um, and we're going to end on a cliffhanger, as they always do, and you've got to decide whether you're going to go to bed or watch the next episode. So as you turn to 1 Samuel 14, uh, chapter 13, was this is where we're up to. Israel is under attack from the Philistines, and they intend to wipe out Israel either by killing them or taking them into slavery. We're told that Israel's army was made up of 3,000 men. The Philistine army had the same number of chariots, 3,000, and 6,000 charioteers, and their soldiers numbered as many as the sand on the seashore. When the Israel army saw the Philistines coming, most of them ran away to the hills, leaving only 600 men. To make matters worse, the Israelites only have two swords between them. King Saul and his son Jonathan have a sword each. The rest of the men have gardening equipment. Yes, that's right, you heard it right. <laughs> Things look grim. Next episode, 1 Samuel chapter 14. One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let us go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among who was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother Ahitub, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozed and the other Sina. One cliff stood to the north towards Michmash and the other to the south towards Jeba. Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let us go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armor-bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, come on, then we'll cross over towards them and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor-bearer, Come up to us and we will teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Climb up after me, the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and his feet, with his armor-bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and the field, and those in the outposts and the raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Saul's lookout at Jibia and ben Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Good morning, everyone. Are we, um, 
probably ready for the next episode. He's on the edge of your seat. He's an exciting story. Uh, it is an exciting story. I love these bits in 1 Samuel, and I love uh, to be able to share it with you this morning and just uh, to see what's, it, what's this got to do with us today. It's not just an exciting story, but a story that hopefully helps uh, impact our lives and change our lives. Let me pray, and then we'll uh, start. Dear Father, we thank you for the way you've worked in the world, particularly in this time uh, so many years ago. We thank you for the lessons we can learn from them and the way you work, and then be amazed. Be amazed at the, the way you step up, the way you save your people then, the way you save your people now. Amen. The, um, there's an interesting uh, thing going on. The Marvel superhero series has just captured so many people's imagination. Me, personally, I have trouble getting, into, getting into it. I have trouble working out how you know, certain animals can walk around and save the universe and save me, and I should be thankful for them. But it's interesting how everybody's engaged. So many things, even on Facebook, have said, um, you know, seen the latest Spider-Man movie, and it's awesome. You've got to go and see it. And I'm like, really? You know, I, I have trouble getting engaged by it. So I did a bit of research to find out what makes the Marvel series so engaging to many people of all different ages. And what they said was it's actually a science. It's not just random, here's a nice story, but they're tapping into something in our psyche that we can actually relate to, even though it's you know, fantasy, it's another world. But what they've tapped into is a, a growing need, a sense of anxiety to, for us to be rescued from, and they said it's only happened since the events of 9-11, when America was under attack, uh, buildings, high-rises were smashed to the ground, and then people realised, there was sort of a moment in time where people go, actually, there are people out there that want to hurt us. There are people out there that want to ruin my life, and I need some sort of superhero figure to protect me. I'm not sure how literal that is, but the anxiety is real. They can actually relate to when they see uh, the bad guys coming in and destroying buildings. We go, we've seen that, we've seen it before, and we need uh, protection from that. And that's where we go into the, the fantasy world to, to actually go, it's not that unrealistic. Now, for me, this guy's my hero. You might have seen him during the week. He was uh, a guy on the Gold Coast, you know, happy playing his pokies in the early hours of the morning. Uh, some guy wielding a machete comes in to rob the, the bar and um, take the takings. And this guy uh, hears all the screaming from the front room and he thinks, you know, because he's an unsuspecting hero, he's not trying to be a hero, hears all the shouting out the front and he's a beauty. You can imagine early hours of the morning, somebody playing the pokies and, um, uh, you know, enjoying a few drinks. Uh, he's going, beauty, somebody's, somebody's won the big jackpot. I'll go and check it out. And here's this guy wielding a machete uh, trying to rob the place. So what does he do? Grab a bar stool, clonks him over the head, grabs a pot plant, chases him out, and he says, the guy drops his machete, it's on footage, drops his machete, runs out the door with the guy having another swing at him with the pot plant, and the guy's just yelling out, leave me alone, leave me alone. <laughs> I think he's also a hero, because he can wear a sleeveless shirt and a beanie at once too. I'd love to do that. Um, but when I think of heroes like that, it's like, well... I like stories about heroes like that, the, the guys that step up from nowhere, unsuspecting heroes. But really, what's that going to do for me? doesn't change my life at all. So what sort of hero do we need? What sort of hero that's going to come and uh, remove our anxieties? And someone who's going to come and not just fix our problems for now, 
but somebody to move into the world, so help us moving uh, on with our lives. Now, here at church, I hope you've picked up already that we talk about Jesus a lot. Jesus is our saviour, Jesus uh, is our Lord, Jesus, we could say, is our hero. But what does that really mean? Because how does Jesus help me? Like, is he real? Because I think for many Christians, we sort of put him in that Marvel thing of going, we've got an enemy out there, you know, we'll put a name on him, Satan, he's out there, and Jesus is going to just somehow do this thing in the sky that's going to deal with Satan, so he's going to leave me alone. Or we actually go, is Jesus like this guy, that he went, he did come and he helped some people, you know, we've got the stories of 2,000 years ago in the Gospels, where Jesus came and he fed people, he healed people, he helped people then, and that was all right for them, that's, he's their hero, but what's he got to do with me? How is he my hero now? How is he going to fix me up now? How does that work? Now, the good question to ask, what do we expect in a hero and what has it got to do with me? And we're actually going to go a little bit of a journey through the Old Testament, this part in 1 Samuel. We did a bit of 1 Samuel last year up to this point. And just in the school holidays, we're going to visit some passages in 1 Samuel again. But it's, it's actually a very good pointer to show us the amazing, crazy power of Jesus, the love of Jesus, and how he does save us. So we're going to dig a bit deeper into this story. We heard sort of, you could say, episode one, even in that reading. We've got to go a little bit further to see how things play out. Uh, but we need to get the feel of what's going on with these main characters so we can appreciate what's going to happen some thousand years later after this story when Jesus comes on the scene. So we come up... To, um, and Lane set the scene really well, Israel are in trouble, serious trouble. And this is the story of Israel, right? Even right from the start of Samuel, the, the, letter of the, the book of 1 Samuel, Israel have been wanting a hero. So you might remember that uh, God had sent a prophet, you know, God's man to lead the people. The people got upset. So we, he doesn't look like a hero. We want a hero, a king who can lead us into battles, to lead us into victory. We want a king like all the other nations. He's going to be our hero. And here, it's sort of played out. They've got a king. It's Saul. But how does he look like a king? We're introduced to these guys in the first few verses. We've got Saul. What do we see him doing? He's the king of Israel, their, their hero. He's sitting under a tree. You know, you've got to remember, the Philistines are surrounding him. They're ready to attack Saul's army has mostly abandoned him and he's sitting under a pomegranate tree. We have, uh, we should mention this guy, Ahijah. He's a priest. He's God's man. God's man should be leading the people as well. Surely he's going to step up. But no, for Ahijah, I'll um, rule him out right away. Twice in 1 Samuel, Ahijah's mentioned. First time he's here, that he's hanging out with the king under the tree. The other time he's being told to get out of the way. Like, don't stand in my way. We've got business to do. So he's not a main player. But we're also interested or introduced to Jonathan. Now, we're sort of warm to Jonathan. He's courageous. He's got the heads up that he's uh, going to be super bold. He's also a bit of a rebel. Says, oh, well, I've got this plan, but don't tell Dad. And we're sort of attracted to a bit of a rebel as well. But he trusts God like no one else. And we can see Jonathan, when he starts off with his armour bearer, he's so confident that God's going to give him victory. He says, come, let's go over to the outpost, those. And he says, we're going to deal with those guys. <coughs> but he says, he's so confident, perhaps the Lord will act in our, on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. 
whether by many or few, whether we've got a big army, sand on the seashore, or just a few of us, two of us, uh, nothing's going to stop the Lord from saving. He's that confident. In fact, we can look at his faith and go, man, this is a guy we need to learn from. Because we're often told about faith being um, this seen and unseen thing. If we go from what we see, often we always see things that question our faith, like the soldiers in the army. As soon as they see the Philistine army, they run to the hills. There's no way we're going to survive this. I'm going to run and save my life now. And they run off scared. But for, but for Jonathan, it's the unseen. He goes, well, God can do this. I don't need to see God and his mighty army, all the angels there, all his battlefield. But he can go in. God can do this. I'm confident. That's what faith is. And it's kind of this, you can imagine the armor bearer just going along with Jonathan, going, are you for real? Are you for real? He says, I'm with you in heart and soul. It's like, Jonathan, I'd expect him to say if he's really behind me, yeah, Jonathan, I'm with you, I'm right behind you, I'm ready to, you know, let's get some Philistines. He goes, I'm with you, heart and soul. It's almost like, actually, I'm with you, heart and soul, but actually my body's going to be over here cheering you on. I hope that's okay. I'm not sure how confident he is. This is like, you know, we've got the ship, uh, the US Army or Navy ship has come into town and it's just a, a sign of how big the US uh, armed forces are they're massive armed forces they pull up into something like tasmania and tasmania pull out their you know bunch of farmers with their gardening equipment this is kind of the same thing going on here it's like there's no way we can take on a big force like that there's no way but this lesson in faith nothing can stop the lord and the armor bearer is like okay let's do this but then we carry on the story Jonathan looks for a sign he gets a sign from God to to go up and take them on uh, and he's so confident he says things like you know with this sign the Lord has given them into our hand he hasn't killed anybody yet but God's already given us the victory we keep on we'll go through this fairly quickly and uh, John A takes them on Jonathan takes them on I feel like I know him so intimately Jonathan takes him on, takes them on, then he kills 20 Philistines, the outpost, straight up. One man with a sword, his armor bearer uh, with a shovel or something, uh, some gardening equipment, takes them on, and they take out 20. But then there's panic. Panic sets in the whole army. And you can imagine if there's, you know, they're massive army. They're sitting in their tents waiting for the battle to fight. All of a sudden they hear, it's on. And they've run out and they've got their swords and they've got their spears. They've got all the chariots, so they unhook all the horses. But with a bit of panic sets in, the horses start stampeding. The men start uh, accidentally mistaking the enemy. There's blood flying everywhere and it's on. They're wiping each other out. Panic sets in and God is credited as uh, setting this panic amongst them and destroying the enemy. Nothing can stop God. Whether many or few, a big army or a couple of people, God is giving them victory. But here's the thing. Saul's still under his tree and he's got his men gathered and they can see something going on on the other hill. They're going, who's doing this? Why? So they do a bit of a scout around and find out it's Jonathan and his armour bearer, just the two of them. And they go, okay, no time to mess around. Let's join in. While we've got the Philistines on the run, let's keep chasing them. So they chase them out. It's so, if it was a hard 
battle and a hard victory to one to be won it'd be only his 600 men chasing him chasing the philistines but what's going on is we're told that all the other men who are hiding in the hills scared for their lives they see the philistines on the run the victory's almost done they just need to come and drive the philistines away so all the men come out and they chase the philistines away that's how big the victory is and who's credited for it that on that day the lord saved israel no mistaken, God's in control. It's a lesson about trusting God, believing in Him and His might and His power that He has the victory. But there's also no doubt who the hero is amongst the camp. They know Jonathan's been the focus of this whole passage. Jonathan come up with the plan. Jonathan trusted God. Jonathan wasn't just talking the talk, he went and did it. Jonathan got the victory in, in killing the 20. Jonathan continued to pursue. Jonathan's the hero. Remember, we're talking about a group of men who's looking for a hero. Who's going to save Israel? It looks grim. All the Philistine army are around them with many weapons and chariots. They've got two swords and a bunch of gardening tools. And Jonathan steps up and he saves the day. He's the hero. It's not the king. Saul comes out looking very bad in this. It's not the priest, God's man. He's nowhere to be seen. He was told to go away. But it's Jonathan on uh, putting his faith into action, saved them from death. He's the sort of guy, if you're a soldier in the army there, you might go, man, I wish I was more like him. I wish my son, when he grows up, was more like Jonathan, to have that sort of faith, that sort of courage, that sort of leadership to put things in action, to save many. He's our hero. Now at this point, We've got to see some parallels. It's a bit hard to miss some parallels with Jesus. Jesus didn't lead people on to a military victory. Uh, but a thousand years after Jonathan, uh, Jesus comes on the scene and he's like, an, he's like a hero that turns up out of nowhere as well. See, in Jesus' day, so 2,000 years ago, uh, people looked for a hero and the priests who were there, the ones that were meant to represent God, God's men, bring them to God and make things right. They were corrupt, so they were just doing things to make themselves rich from, from what was going on in the temple. Jesus steps up as the unlikely hero. He's a guy that steps into humanity. I'm not sure whether you've thought about this. Uh, his mum fell pregnant, unmarried, as a teenager. His dad, uh, the father who raised him, at least, was a tradie, a chippy, nothing against chippies, but, you know, he's not a man of status in this culture. In our culture, we all love chippies, but in this culture, it's like, who is this guy? He comes from Nowheresville, you know, not, not from Judah or, you know, Jerusalem. That wasn't born in a palace, but a stable. He's the unlikely hero. But then what he did, he actually put his faith into practice. He actually went to the lost, went to the outcast of society, sought them out. Those people who were pushed out because of their sickness, and he loved them and made them well. Those people who were pushed out because they were demon-possessed, he healed them. The hungry, he fed them. He fed multitudes. It's like, this guy's the real Marvel-type hero in that he's doing these supernatural things that he must be from God, that he is from God. 
and people responded to him they could see that he was a hero there's that one time they wanted to make him king so they put jesus on a colt they gave him a parade they marched him up the city and they put palm branches down which they would only do for a king and they called out for him to be king they wanted to make him king the hundreds if not thousands of people lined the streets wanting to make him king he was their hero it's very clear in that scene that jesus was the hero of the day at that point in time but let's bring it back to to jonathan because that's not the end of the story in fact there's a big twist about to come up the very next verse talks about how there's sin in the camp and they've got to deal with see the israelite army instead of celebrating jonathan and putting on a parade for him putting him on a cult the israelites were in distress things weren't good and for that um so uh, the the writer gives us a bit of background on what's going on they were in distress that day because saul bound the people under oath saying this is back before the battle cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes before i have avenged myself on the enemy so none of the troops tasted food if you taste the food you're going to be cursed by the king now you already see a bit of a contrast between uh, what saul's trying to do as king as a pretend hero by saying i'm going to avenge myself where reality is god's the one that's going to avenge the philistines it's actually a bit of a picture on saul's actually playing god here he thinks he's god he's going to take control as god i'm the hero actually i am god i'm going to avenge the people but that just digs himself into trouble we go on uh to how this plays out that's a bit of a background he makes this law because god sets up law and he says i'm god so i'm going to make this law nobody's going to eat until i have victory but then what happens we get told while they're chasing the philistines out through the bush uh, the army the israelite army catch up with jonathan they come across a fallen tree there's a honey there's a beehive falling on the ground there's honey pouring out of it and jonathan's like you ripper dips his sword into it and just tastes a bit of honey it's a nice honey you know a bit of relief while they're chasing the philistines and the men around just go oh no you can't do that the king has set up this rule you can't go and eat today or else you'll be cursed by the king you can't do it but jonathan's their hero right so you know mum's the word jonathan we're not going to tell anybody your secret's safe with us it's all good so they all keep it quiet until saul king saul wants wants a bit more leadership so he actually calls on god should i keep pursuing the philistines and completely wipe them out or should i withdraw so in the old testament times the king would consult they're encouraged to consult with god for direction and things like that but the problem here was god was silent he wasn't answering remember this is old testament times the way god deals with people but it throws it back to to saul what's he going to do god's not giving a clear direction pursue or withdraw what's he going to do now what i think's going on and this is not explicit in the passage but what i think's going on is god is saying you know what saul you want to play god here have it you play god and see how you go because saul's going to make a lot of decisions that sound very kind of godly but he mucks it up big time because what he goes on to say uh in verse 7 uh 
from verse 37. Uh, we'll pick it up from verse 38. Saul uh, brings all his leaders because God's he's frustrated God's not answering. Come here, all you who are leaders of the army, and let us find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. He's saying the sinner must die. But no one said a word. No one wants their hero to die. They're not going to dob in Jonathan. So the tension's building. The tension's getting, it's heating up. Now notice in this, some of the decisions Saul is making. He's saying, breaking his law, his law not to eat food, is now a sin. He's calling it out as a sin because it's my law and I'm God and if you do the wrong thing, it's me. I'm going to call it a sin. Now, it's it's wrong because anywhere in in the Bible, sin is only against God. It's when we do things against God, when we offend God. But now Saul's saying, no, you've disobeyed me, sin against me. And get this, for breaking his law, if you committed this sin, is now punishable by death. Now, God did punish people by death uh, on the spot for things like um, getting into the temple and really destroying things, uh, like serious, serious, offensive things to God. But for eating honey... No, not like that. But now Saul's God. He's going, no, anything anybody's done wrong is punishable by death. How are they going to find out who sins? Because everybody's like, zip, mum's the word, don't want to dob our hero in. So then they pull out this thing. Uh, with, it's a tr- tradition they used to do. Uh, the priest had two stones and they'd pull out these two stones to find out who's guilty about things. Saul says, hey, Jonathan on my side, men on that side, who's guilty? And the stone comes up, it's between Jonathan and Saul, he's guilty. Then he looks at Jonathan and they they do the two stones and it's very clear Jonathan is the one that's guilty. And he comes out and it's like, what have you done? What have you done, Jonathan? Jonathan told him, I just tasted a little honey at the end of my staff and now I must die. You could imagine the heat is really heating up. Because we have already seen Saul. Saul's already said, there's a problem in the camp. Somebody has sinned and they must die. I don't care who it is. Even if it's my son, Jonathan, he must die. And now it's been shown, it's Jonathan. Jonathan puts up his defense. This doesn't make sense. This is crazy. This is scandalous. All I did was have a bit of honey on the end of my staff and now I'm going to die. Do you realize how crazy this is? how scandalous this is, but I can imagine Jonathan, he's, at this point his chest, his heart's jumping out of his chest because he's, his life's on the line. But then we see Saul. What is Saul doing? Saul said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. Yeah, that tone of like, don't speak against me. I can imagine at this time, Saul's got his sword in his hand. You know, you're making me look bad, Jonathan. Now somebody's got to die. And it's you. It's you. Man, the heat's really heating up. This is the hero. Everybody's looking on. The soldiers are still there. Is he really going to take out a hero? The one man who led us to victory. The one man who led us as an example of how to trust God. They're going to they're gonna kill him? Saul's going to kill him? So the men speak up. The men said to Saul, should Jonathan die? 
He who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel. What they're saying is, He is our Saviour. He saved us. Remember when we were 600 huddled around your little tree and the Philistines were around us going to kill us? He led us into victory. He's our Saviour. He delivered us. Never, they say. It's not going to happen. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair on his head will fall to the ground for he did this today with God's help. See, if anyone's God's man, it's Jonathan. Where was the priest? He racked off with his tail between his legs because he was told to go away. But Jonathan stepped up and God used him. Jonathan's our hero. He can't die, is their logic. It's scandalous that this would happen. But everybody's waiting to see what happens. Jonathan, his heart's doing a million beats a minute. Saul's there with his sword in his hand. Somebody must die, Jonathan. And the soldiers are going, are you for real? He's our hero. You can't do it. What do you think's going to happen? How do you think this story's going to end? Is he going to die, Jonathan, the hero? Could he die? It'd be a scandalous story. What is Saul going to do? He doesn't want to look bad because he's put himself up as God. The very next verse, we're told, so the men rescued Jonathan and he was not put to death. And what happened? Pretty much everybody went home. That was the end. It's kind of like an anticlimax, but I think while we're sort of on the edge of our seat, what is going to happen? What is God doing? What's all, what are all the players doing here? I think we're left with a, a slight frustration because everybody's gone home and nothing has been dealt with. Saul is the pretend king, a uh, pretend God, and doing a terrible job at it. He just goes home and he's still king. Jonathan, well, technically he's done wrong, but because he's the hero, he gets to live. And the Philistines, the enemy, well, they've wandered off. They haven't been dealt with. They'll come back and fight another day. They haven't dealt with the enemy. So nothing's been dealt with. From a strategic sense, nothing's been achieved by Israel and the Philistines. They've put them off for another day. So we've got to ask, what is this story about? What do we do with this? The Old Testament's written not just as a history book to tell us, oh, you know, this is the, the events that happened, but it's lessons. It was recorded for people, uh, for future generations to read and go, this is what you're meant to do, or this is how you think, this is how you should understand God. And it's forcing us, even today, to think. It would be a better ending. I'd be much happier if we ended the story where the Bible reading was. Jonathan, the hero, put his faith on the line, the unseen, trusted God. He goes in, destroys the Philistine. It'd be a great message to go, be more like Jonathan. Be more like Jonathan, have faith like Jonathan, and then God will help you destroy your enemies. You know, if you've got enemies in your life, have that unseen faith. God can destroy. What's going to stop God from having victory? As many or few, God can deal with my enemies. But the story goes much deeper. It takes it to another level, doesn't it? Actually, Jonathan's in trouble. He messes up, but then it's not dealt with. Jesus uh, taught his disciples when they're reading the Old Testament to see how the Old Testament shines into the New Testament. What does the Old Testament teach about uh, who Jesus is, how to, how to relate with God, and particularly how to understand the cross? 
And this is one of those stories. Because it points to a real hero who is not going to go away with things not dealt with. See, when Jesus comes, and Jesus is the hero, remember we talked about how he was the hero amongst the people. But he does deal with the real problem of this sin, the sin that wasn't dealt with in the camp before. And Jesus will not just fix up the issue temporarily, but he'll fix up the issues for all eternity in saving his people, for all of us. But it's also a crazy story, a scandalous story in how he does it. See, when we get to the cross, we meet the real Father God, God who judges sin justly. He's a good judge. And he does punish for, his, punish for sin. He's not going to uh, punish just for a, a man-made rule like eating honey, but he does punish sin, sin being the offensive things that are done to God. So if you ignore God, if you treat him like he doesn't exist, even if you say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, yeah, I, I pray sometimes, but ignore him, you don't do the things he asks you to do, and you do do the things he tells you not to do, you're pretty much ignoring him, telling him he doesn't matter in your life, that's sin. That's serious. And he will punish it. He's a just judge. Sin is serious and he will punish it. But we also have a hero in Jesus. And like Jonathan, he trusted God. He always had confidence. And he saved people. He was a hero to many, particularly the outcasts, the broken, the ones hiding in the hills, basically. He saved them. He was their saviour. But he's better than Jonathan. Better than Jonathan because he's really God's son. He's not just the son of a pretend God, but he's really God's son. He's the real deal. He's completely obedient. Completely obedient to the Father's rules. He doesn't say, hey, I've got a plan better than my father. Let's go and do this, but don't tell the father. Mum's the word. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus was never guilty of sinning at all. There was never a moment when the disciples saw Jesus do something and go, oops, Jesus, you shouldn't have done that, but don't worry, we won't tell God, your secret's safe with us. The disciples could never do that. Jesus was completely innocent, completely sinless. So if we were to cast lots, lots to see if any of us have sinned and Jesus is in the room, Jesus is always going to get the not guilty. But the way we've treated God, we're always going to get the guilty stone that we are guilty of sin and we can't deny that but then the scandal is if israel's army could cry out in support of jonathan even though he technically did wrong against the king but the army cried out that he shouldn't die that would be a scandal even injustice what should we do about jesus jesus truly being innocent but Jesus saying, while he was alive, while he was the hero saving people, he's saying, by the way, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested and beaten and falsely accused. And I'm going to be killed on a cross. What would we do with that moment? If Jonathan's was a scandal, you know, hearts pumping, somebody's going to die. Surely with Jesus going to Jerusalem to the cross, that's a scandal because he's truly innocent. He's truly the hero. Even when Jesus told Peter, one of his disciples, Peter says, no, no, that can't happen. I won't let it happen. 
But Jesus replied, get behind me, Satan. Like, Peter, I'm going to the cross to die. Even Pilate, one of the Romans, he had no agenda to save Jesus, but one of the Romans said, I find no reason for this man to be killed. He's innocent. So we see his innocence affirmed. He does not deserve death in that moment. But then he was led to the cross, nailed to the wood and hung up to die. Now it was not a mistake that Jesus died. It wasn't Jesus bit out of control, he upset a few people and they wanted him dead. It's very clear that he was killed because of sin. You know, the same sin that was in the camp that Saul wanted to deal with. It's but amped up a thousand times. This is real sin Jesus was dying for. But the question we've got to ask is whose sin? Because if it's not Jesus dying the death because of his sin, whose sin is it? There's a passage in 1 Peter, and Peter is the same guy who said, Jesus, I'm not going to let you go to the cross. He explains how this plays out. He says, he committed no sin, talking about Jesus, and no deceit was found in his mouth. And you've got to picture this. He's talking about the moment when Jesus went to the cross. If you're going to get angry, if you're going to lose it, if you're going to really you know, start be abusive and sin, you know, speaking badly to other people, this would be the time, wouldn't it? But even Peter describes, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. It wasn't about the people putting the nails in his hand. He didn't speak badly against them. He actually asked God to forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. But he's submitting to his father, the father who judges justly. He says sin's got to be dealt with. The penalty for sin is death. Serious sin, stuff that we're guilty of, is death. But Jesus is submitting and taking that death, the punishment that the father's dishing out because of sin. And verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Do you get how scandalous this is? We don't want to see our hero killed. Jonathan, the men were arguing, don't, say, don't kill Jonathan. He's our hero. He's our saviour. He's the only one that points us to God. He's the most godless man amongst us. Don't kill him. The same thing could be said of Jesus, only amped up a thousand times. He's the one who's saving us. He's the one who's leading us to victory. He's the one who's pointing us to God. But yet, when it comes to who's going to die for the sin, this is like, imagine back at the campsite, uh, the stones being rolled over, you have Saul, the pretend God, you have Jonathan, the hero, and the men, and the men pull up the straw to say they're guilty. What would Saul do? Well, you men have to die. I'm not sure whether Jonathan's going, no, take me. He wasn't going to die just for himself, let alone all those people. Jonathan's not stepping in. But here, Jesus going, you know what? These sinners need to be saved. And if I'm going to be a real hero, I'm not going to live because I'm a hero like Jonathan. But I'm going to die because I'm a hero so these people might live. How scandalous, isn't it, that the hero would step in like that? It's scandalous that somebody so perfect would give his life just so we could live. Peter continues, 
Because this changes things. It doesn't change things just in Jesus' day. It changes for us now. Peter goes on, he says, He himself bore our sin in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For generations to come, for us now, we can die to sin. Sin no longer reigns over us. We have the Lord to follow. We live for righteousness. We don't follow our own way. We don't want to be the pretend God of our own life. But we've got a real God we can follow and trust. We've been healed by his wounds spiritually, but also we know for eternity. He saved us for eternity. That's significant. That's something I think it's easy for us to take for granted when we talk about Jesus, the cross, and Saviour. I use that language every day. But it's a scandalous story that he would save us. Three quick things that I think we need to take away. Don't think lightly of sin because our sin is offensive to God. You can't say, but I'm a good person. I don't deserve to die. No, even through this story, Old Testament, New Testament, sin is offensive. We need to take it seriously. Sin breaks our relationship with God and we can't be playing the, zip it, I won't tell anybody, God will never find out. He knows. We can't play the game of pretending that we're sinless, that we haven't done anything. God knows. We need to be honest with him. So we need to deal with sin as it is. Don't deal lightly of the cross. That God gave his son to die for you. That whole thing. Nothing can stop the Lord from having victory. Nothing can stop the Lord from saving his people. Nothing can stop the Lord from saving you with many or few, God says, actually, I'm going to send my son, my son to save you. That's significant. It's not just a thing we wear around our neck or put up on the screen. It's where God sent his son to die for us, to take our sin. And thirdly, because we've been healed, we live for righteousness. We're God's people now. Don't run off doing our own thing, but we live with a true and living God that we follow, we worship, and we're going to hang out for all of eternity with uh, when we trust in Jesus and what he's done for us. This is, I encourage you, read chapters 13, 14 uh, when you get home of 1 Samuel, read over it again, pick up the vibe of the heat and the weight of it all and see it through Jesus and the cross. Let me pray now. Dear Father, we thank you for the way you work in history, we thank you for revealing that today. Thank you that we have a saviour and hero and Lord that we can trust. Thank you for your great love for us by sending Jesus. Thank you that we can trust him, not as a comic book hero, not as a, uh, somebody who's chasing off bandits, but somebody who's going to do with our real issue of sin. Thank you for the promise of eternity and we long for that day. So Lord, help us to keep focused on Jesus and what he's done on the cross for us that we might live a life of righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.